the Indian, the son of our yard man, who was a senior to her sophomore and a star on the Marquette High School football team. At the time, 1966, for a girl of Cynthia's social standing to get herself pregnant by an Indian boy would be the same as a girl from a prominent Mississippi family becoming pregnant from an affair with a black man. In animal terms, Cynthia could be likened to a wolverine, the most relentlessly irascible beast in North America, whereas I, in my teens, was more an opossum who wished to be a bear. Not oddly, it was a grotesque and unprosecuted crime committed by my father that drove us away, but then I have to work up to this dire event. I'm too impatient to start at the beginning, and besides, no apparent God knows when that might be. I'm averse to the mirror in my cabin toilet, having long ago unscrewed the single light bulb, but since the toilet is on the north side of the cabin and heavily shaded by a clump of fir trees, I never see myself anyway in more than dimmish light. I don't dislike myself, but there's enough left of the outward thrust of jaw to remind me of my great-grandfather, my grandfather, and my father. More than a trace of luck came along when my mother's small facial features moderated my own, so that the old-timers in Michigan's Upper Peninsula didn't directly turn away in muted fear and nervousness. All but a few of the younger citizens, say those under forty, have forgotten the specifics of who we were. I'm not going to trap myself here. I wasn't quite eighteen years old when I declared my intentions to Lake Superior on a stormy night near the grave of an old Indian on Presque Isle that I wasn't going to use up my life thinking about myself, which seemed to be the total preoccupation of my schoolmates and all the adults I knew except Jesse, my father's aide since World War II, Clarence, and my uncle, my mother's brother Frederick, who lived in a cabin way down in southern Ohio across the Ohio River from eastern Kentucky. Fred had been an Episcopalian priest in Chicago, who had lost interest in his calling a step ahead of his parishioners losing patience with his terminal eccentricities. He survived on family money and a small pension from the church, given for his general mental incontinence. Fred told me when I was sixteen that modern man at the crossroads mostly just stayed at the crossroads. This notion is fine in itself, but more importantly Fred taught me how to row a boat on lakes and rivers. He built one for me in two weeks during a hot Ohio June, lifted and secured it in the back of his pickup, and then we drove north straight through to Osable Lake near Grand Marais, Michigan, launching the boat at dawn, breaking a bottle of Goebel's beer over the bow, but then Fred became confused over the names we might use to christen the boat. Fred owned an obnoxious dog, a mixed Airedale bull terrier he had named simply No, so I suggested Yes as a boat name, because when we finally rowed the boat out on the lake that summer morning, Fred had to forcibly detach No's teeth from the oar, and I wanted to put a positive feeling on the experience. Fred subdued the dog and said the name Yes would be banal. Fred liked to imitate the questionable behavior of his poor white neighbors, but he was a learned man, his cabin stuffed with books. He broke another Goebel's bottle over the gunwale and christened my rowboat Boat. It was then that a male loon flew near us, disappearing into the mist at the west end of the lake, with that circular and querulous cry, which, after a long silence, Fred likened to the laughter before death of an insane saint. All of Fred's frame of reference was Christian, though he thought of it as a religion that hadn't panned out, and after three beers would present a long and repetitive argument that the religion of his calling had done more harm than good to the world. 
This point was a precarious teeter-totter that daily haunted him, but after too many beers and a nap he would withdraw his blasphemies, because I was thinking of the ministry at the time, and he didn't want to discourage me. How better could I renounce both my father and my own Western preoccupation with self than to take up a primitive form of Christianity? Of course, my father ignored this right up to the point that I also refused the family tradition of Yale and enrolled instead at Michigan State University, and then he knew that he had truly lost me, not that he seemed to care. This is a case where mere fact isn't instructive. I had taken over the rowing, and we were close to shore, moving through reed and lily-pad beds, with the dog growling intermittently on the shore. It was already warm at eight in the morning, and a slight breeze kept the clouds of mosquitoes enshrouded in the forest. Fred was peeling a hard-boiled egg drawn from the cooler and dosing it with Tabasco. I had just asked a mawkish theological question about Mary Magdalene, a query about forgiveness, attached to this woman in part because I was a virgin at sixteen, and imagined Mary Magdalene to be a haunted seductress, her robes parted wantonly for those who took interest and gave her a few coins. This boat incident took place over thirty years ago, and I see the bits of eggshell floating on the shaded water. Fred was tired and irritable from driving north all night. That's your main problem, he said. You can't have religion without belief. You're just using your religion to decorate your life to protect you from your father. It's like your mother flying down to Chicago to go to a dress shop, say something pastel pink for Easter when the Lord was said to arise. That's no better than your dad driving from Marquette to Duluth to fuck one of his fifteen-year-olds. What I'm saying is that you can't be playing around with your Christianity like it was a tool kit to keep you going. How does that make you better than your dad? Right now you'd give your left nut for an hour with Mary Magdalene. Fred was making light of my recent religious conversion wherein my soul was saved at the Fundamentalist Baptist Church, an event that offended my family's Episcopalian sensibilities, including Fred's. The landscape turned reddish, and I pulled hard on the oars and hit shore in a snake-grass reed bed. The dog understood my anger before Fred and barked loudly. I jumped out of the boat and headed into an alder thicket, that immediately tripped me three times because my body was trying to move faster than my feet. I think I was yelling, Fuck you! Even now my voice feels boyish and cracking with dry sobs. Two weeks before, on the day I hitchhiked south from Marquette, my sister Cynthia had been sitting on a blanket out in her special corner of the yard near her disused playhouse. I was in the workshed next to the garage where Clarence, our yardman, often stayed, and where he slept on an old leather couch. I was near the greasy workbench, careful not to touch it in my Sunday suit. I was on my way to the Baptist church while my parents were dressing for a later service at the Episcopalian. I was checking to see if Clarence wanted to trout fish that afternoon. Many Chippewa are large men, and so are the Finnish, and Clarence was half of each. I once saw him unload a four-hundred-pound wood stove from his Studebaker pickup and carry it into this selfsame shed. One June Sunday morning through the stained window above the workbench while we were talking about where we might fish in the evening and had decided on the yellow dog, we saw my father walk across the yard and approach Cynthia, who was now doing calisthenics in a bathing suit which the prig in me thought far too brief for Sunday morning. He must have said something truly awful, because Cynthia grabbed a large wooden stake that propped up a rose trellis and swung it at father, hitting him in the chest, hip, and knee, 
before he could retreat to the back porch where Jesse was standing on the steps. Father was hobbling, but Jesse made no move to help him. I made a move toward the workshed door, but Clarence grabbed my arm. Jesse brushed off my father's pant leg, where the dirty end of the garden stake had soiled them. I looked back at Cynthia, who was now reading a magazine as if nothing had happened. She was fourteen at the time, ruled her own world, and kept her bedroom door locked. I went out the back door of the workshed and down the alley to the street, where Jesse now stood by the old Packard, waiting to drive my parents to church. I told him I was going to hitchhike or take the Greyhound down to Ohio while my parents were at church. When something went wrong with my family, I always fled for a week or so. Jesse's real name was Jesus Tomas Sandoval, but the people around Marquette couldn't accept the occasional Mexican custom of naming a son Jesus, so he was called Jesse by everyone except my father, who called him Sandy, a private joke that had never been explained to me. They had met at basic training for World War II near Houston, and where Jesse had come north from Veracruz when he found out you could earn citizenship by fighting for the United States. They fought together, I think, at Corregidor and the Philippines under MacArthur, and my father had quite literally bought Jesse's life, what with his becoming a faithful manservant, amanuensis, bookkeeper, valet, travel agent, and whatever to my father. Jesse was efficient rather than subservient, while my father's appearance was such that if you saw him in a bank or airport you'd think, there's a man who knows what he's doing, always well-groomed and tailored, checking his watch as if time was of consequence. A shell, actually, on which the culture had slowly painted all of the characteristics of a wasp cock of the walk, an alpha white male, while inside there was only a decayed question mark, a living grave soaked with booze and desires so errant that all but a few people...